for those who can make it. Um, let's bow for a word of prayer, and then uh, I'm going to seek to answer the question that we didn't answer last week. Father, we uh, are thankful that you are our God, that you're a God who loves us, cares for us. Lord, that you care for us enough to give us your word, to, to lay out uh, who you are in written form, that we might better understand you, better know you, and by that better worship you and live for you. So, Father, tonight would you open our hearts and our minds to your scripture, to your word, to your truth, uh, that we might be changed by it, that we might be transformed, that we might renew our minds, no longer conformed to this world and its thinking and its hollow philosophies, but, Father, to your truth. Change us tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Joan asked a very good question last week, and Bill and I did not do a very good job answering it. We answered it correctly, we just didn't answer it fully. Joan asked, when we were talking about forgiveness, she said, do we have to forgive someone even if they don't ask us for forgiveness? And the answer is yes, we do. We are commanded to forgive whether they ask or not. And then she said, well, but God doesn't. God does not forgive. God only forgives those who ask him for forgiveness. Is, how does that work? And our quick short answer was, but we're not God. Um, and while that's true, we're not. That's probably not the best answer for that. I mulled that over more as we went along in the week. And the reason why, if, if Vic and I are on the outs, and Vic has offended me in some way, hurt me, I need to forgive him whether Vic asks me for forgiveness or not, irregardless of whether he asks me. I'm, I'm required by God to forgive him. Here's why. God doesn't have to do that because God is perfect and holy. God doesn't have to ask forgiveness of anyone. We are both sinful, and in the eyes of God, we are the same in our sinfulness. And so we are required to ask God for forgiveness, and because we are both in the same boat, I have to also forgive him, whether he asks for it or not. God, being holy, doesn't have to forgive anyone. Uh, he would be just as holy, just as right in never forgiving anyone. He could have easily just said, okay, Adam and Eve, you're done. Pfft, we're, we're finished. Um, but in his grace and his mercy. Now, because we are on the same human need forgiveness plane, we are then required to do that. Does that make a little more sense? It's better than because you're not God. <laughs> I knew that wasn't a good answer, but I, that was all we had. Well, tonight we want to pick up kind of where we left off last week. We were talking ministry, Jesus' ministry within and his ministry without, uh, meaning within the church, within those believers, but he also had a ministry outside those believers to the world. And tonight we're going to, I didn't know where I could fit this in, but we're going to talk about his enemies. And uh, because Jesus had enemies without too. Um, the crowd was, was filled with enemies um, that, that did not want to see him um, succeed in ministry uh, that tried desperately on several occasions to uh, kill him, to destroy him, uh, to trip him up, to trick him, uh, to discredit him, anything and everything they could, even if it required them lying, they were more than willing to do that, whatever it took to get him out of the way. So we're going to look at, uh, at some of those groups of enemies uh, that were there as well. But ministry without, that Jesus focused much of his earthly ministry 
on the preparation of his disciples. Remember, we talked about that, that, that he really needed um, not only to go to the cross, but he needed to have a group of people, a group of, of he chose 12 men, that were ready to carry on the good news, that were ready to tell the world, spread the news that Christ had come, that the Messiah had come and died for sins. And so he spent a lot of time pouring himself into those 12. And we said even the three, Peter, James, and John, more than the other nine. Um, and so much of his, his earthly ministry went into those 12, but also it spilled over into the crowds that, that gathered. Um, and so to the general public, the unbelievers, what sometimes now gets called the outsiders, those that are on the outside of faith. Um, some of his uh, evangelistic encounters, um, the book of John is, is interesting in that you can find in every chapter of John, the gospel is presented or talked about in some way. Every single chapter. Walk right through John and you don't have to, you can get pretty deep into the book of Acts before it, it, you can't find it in a chapter. Um, but Jesus was about evangelism. I mean, he started with his 12. He reached out. He called them to himself. Um, and we say that these are evangelistic encounters because Jesus tended to use everyday events to reach people. He didn't set up a tent and preach. Not that there's anything wrong with that. He didn't schedule a week of revival in Galilee and I'm going to be there June. To... No. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But Jesus did it as he went about his daily business as he just went about from town to town, he would preach people that he would come in contact with in their daily routine. And that's important for us to understand because he set us the example that just in our normal routine, we should be having evangelistic encounters with people. Okay? People that we have relationship with, maybe people that we don't have relationship with. We don't always get to call that shot because Jesus is the one that's setting them up. Divine appointments. Sometimes we call them. That, that God's going to bring people into our life and we just need to be ready to talk to them, to minister to them, to reach out to a need, to share the gospel with them. And that's kind of what Jesus did as he went through uh, his day. And he showed the disciples that that was the way uh, to do it as well. So a number of outside encounters, just a few that, we, that, that kind of stand out. Um, the first one is with Nicodemus, John chapter 3. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And this is John chapter 3 where he explains that you have to be born again. Oddly enough, that's the only time that that word for phrase born again is used in scripture. But we've beat it to death. Um, that you have to be a born again believer. You have to be a born again. And, and now that even has kind of lost some of its punch to what born again means. Um, and Jesus' whole point was that not just physical birth, but you need to be reborn spiritually. You have, need to have a new spiritual start. In the Greek, it's born from above, born from above uh, in the Greek. So in Nicodemus, right off the bat, and we, uh, we'll talk about him in just a little bit when we talk about the Pharisees. Uh, again, John chapter 4, if you, you're going through John chapter 3, John chapter 4, we find that uh, he meets the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, interesting here that as they are <clears throat> traveling, they're wanting to go back to Galilee, and he says, we're going to pass through Samaria, and his disciples don't want to do that because Samaria is not a really nice place to travel through, and they were, uh, the Samaritans were um, 
and Jews were always in conflict. And so the disciples, a lot of times, people would just walk around it. They would never go through. Well, Jesus wanted to go through. So he sends his disciples into town to buy food. They were hungry, so they're going into town. He's out on the outside of town, and he comes up to a well. And it's the heat of the day, and uh, midday, and uh, this woman comes to draw water from the well to get her daily. That was a daily chore. The women would go to the well, um, usually early in the morning, to draw the water that they needed for that day, and then carry it back to their houses. Jesus comes midday and finds a woman drawing water. Um, and Jesus asks her for a drink. And it kind of startles her because she says, why are you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan, and a woman for a drink? Because this Samaritan woman had learned um, that going down to the well in the morning when all the other women were there was just asking for trouble on her own because she was a woman that had lived with five different men, had been married to five different men, and the one she's living with now wasn't her husband, but she was living with him. And so to just avoid all the stares, all the, the whispering behind her back, she just learned wait until all the women are gone and then go down by yourself, and here's this man. And if you know the story, Jesus began talking to her and talking to her about worship and, and the Messiah that was coming. And through the course of that conversation, he revealed to her who he was, that he was the Messiah. And she immediately um, runs back into town to tell everyone about him and to tell everyone about this man. You have to come see this man that just told me everything about my life. And... Uh, and so Jesus there encounters this woman. Now when the disciples come back, they were wondering why he was talking to this woman. Um, they knew enough about her uh, or could tell by looking at her uh, that it's not the kind of woman that Jesus ought to be talking to uh, or would want to be seen with. And uh, why, would they, why would he be talking to her? And then he said, they said, you know, we've got food. And he said, you know, I'm really not hungry anymore. I've just, you know, I've just done the food, done the will of my father, and that, that has filled me. And they thought maybe he got food somewhere else. They just didn't get it. But to be, but to be spiritually, uh, to have those encounters and to share revives us and energizes us. Um, and, uh, and it did this Samaritan woman, because in number three encounters the Samaritans. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Now, this is he stayed in Samaria two days where the disciples didn't even want to pass through. And now, guys, hey, we're camping out. We're going to stay here for a couple more days. Um, apparently, they didn't put up a fight. They saw what was happening, that, that they were in, in esteemed. I mean, they were being highly esteemed by these people because of Jesus. It says, they said to the, then they said to the woman, uh, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Um, and so here's a woman of ill repute, bad reputation. Uh, townspeople look down on her. She runs back into town, tells them about Jesus. They want to know more. They come back. And so here's a woman that her life was changed in an instant, and over the course of two days, many others in the town, because of her testimony, and what they heard from Jesus uh, changed their life as well. Flip on through John chapter 4, you get the royal official's household. 
father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This is a, a, official that, a royal official that's coming to Jesus in the crowd um, and asking for him to, to heal his son. And they, uh, Jesus says, you know, talking with him back and forth, uh, realizes then that he actually heals his son. Jesus never actually goes to the house. Heals him from there. And at that very moment, when he went back to the house and found his son was healed, he asked them, when, when exactly did that happen? And he realized it was at the time that Jesus had been talking to him. And he and his entire household believed. Um, paralytic through the roof, probably a story uh, many of you, if you're familiar with the Gospels at all, have heard. Um, or have read Luke chapter 5. Uh, four friends. Uh, crowds are, are huge in this town. Jesus is in a house preaching, healing, talking to people. And they've got to get their, their paralytic friend. There's four of them. Uh, and they've got to get their friend in to see Jesus. And so what they do is they just pick him up on the mat, carry him up on the roof of the house, and start tearing apart the roof. I don't know, you know, if Jesus was at your house and people started tearing apart your roof, uh, you might not be all that happy. We don't, uh, we don't really find out what the homeowner was thinking at this time, whether he had insurance, take care of it, whatever, I don't know. Um, but there didn't seem to be a big ruckus over tearing up the roof. It was more of a shock to see this guy coming through. And Jesus heals him and forgives his sins uh, at that moment. And uh, so again, another, another encounter with the crowd. And you can read more and more. These are just really four that probably stand out um, and are early on in his ministry. Um, also, as he was going through the crowds, he would be questioned. People from the crowd would question, honest questions. Um, we were sharing this morning, Bill and I got the opportunity, um, me during first service, him during second service, to go into Upstreet. And today the kids were, could write any question they wanted, any question they wanted to ask on a card. And then Bill and I would draw them out and we would answer them. And uh, the cutest questions in the world uh, coming from these little kids. What year was Jesus born? That was one they wanted to know. How many stars are there? How many angels are there? How many friends did Jesus have? Um, those were the ones he asked, they asked me. They asked Bill much tougher questions about how, does, how do you get Jesus in your heart? Um, and uh, so it just... Phenomenal to, to watch these kids begin to think about truth and about the scriptures and the lessons that they're learning. Well, the crowd was no different in Jesus' time. And so they asked him some questions. Mark chapter 10 says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this was the rich young ruler, and he asks an honest question. I think, but he, he asks it honestly. It's an honest question, but I think he's got a little motive behind it because of the, the exchange that Jesus has with him. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But it seems to come out of pride that he's asking. Because he's already assuming that he's done everything he needs to do. And Jesus says, you know, the Ten Commandments. Have you? And he says, yeah, I followed them all. I've done them all. Well, okay, I have a hard time believing that. But okay, that was what he said. I, I did them all. He said, fine. Then go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Mm, can't do that. You know, he had a hard time with that. And, and he walked away rejected. He walked away uh, downcast because what Jesus was asking him was for his, his whole self. Um, 
And so humility, not pride, is what Jesus was teaching his disciples here. He said that it, you, you can't come to Christ with pride. You have to come with all humility. You have to come really renouncing everything of this world to follow him. And uh, it was humility that made a person great in the kingdom of God, not riches, not worldly wealth. Um, and this man could not accept that. Um, and so he's teaching his disciples the need for humility. He's teaching the crowd the need for humility. Because up to this point, the crowd understood, follow the Ten Commandments. Keep those, that's what gets you in. Because that's what, the, the, to follow the law, the, the law of Moses, and, and all the things that the Pharisees had, had taught and were teaching and were telling. And, and if you just did all of those things, then you were in. And this man came to him thinking he had done that, and he was going to get a pat on the back from Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, it's, it's with humility that you come. And it's not about doing all of those things. It's, it's renouncing your own life and following me, giving me everything that you have. And uh, he had a hard time with that. Another question that came up, John chapter 9. We're going to have to turn to that one. Um, John chapter 9. He said, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, here, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt that something bad happened to you because of your sin? It was because of your sin that Jesus is now, God is punishing you because of your sin. Um, that's not true, not how God works. Um, you know, there are consequences for our sin. There are guilty feelings that we will have because of our sin. But, but we don't get direct punishment at the time of sin. And these guys were, were understanding. His disciples were understanding that they were. Jesus' answer is neither this man nor his parents sin. But this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Uh, this word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Uh, and so Jesus, again, is, is teaching his disciples, you know, a very important lesson that, that God is sovereign, that, that he allows things to occur in our lives that he can use for his own glory. And we need to understand that there are things that happen to us, not because of sin, not because, but because God wants to use it. God doesn't waste anything in our life, even our sin. He will use that to his glory. You know, Romans says that God can work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That if we will live and we will give him all of that pain, all of that suffering, all of that hurt, all of that sin... He turns it around, redeems it, buys it back, and can use it for his glory. And so we need not be ashamed of weaknesses in our life because God wants to use them. He's allowed us to have those weaknesses. He's allowed us to have that infirmity or that uh, whatever the, the, the physical condition may be or whatever it is that we would want to hide, that we would want to, to blame on sin. God wants to use it for his own glory, and we need to allow him to do that. We need not ask why. Why did this happen to me? You know, someone always says, why me? My question is, why not you? Are you so great that bad things shouldn't happen to you? No. But God allows things to happen so that he can redeem them and, and show his glory through them.
Yeah. That would be my understanding of what Jesus is saying. That, that it happened for this time so that I could do this right here and heal him. And should, yes. And that still happens in our lives. I think so. Yep. God still allows things to happen. Or in some cases causes them to happen. So that he can receive the glory through the results of what happens. And so we need not ask why, but out of faith we, we accept and, and we give it to God and we live for him. We accept the weakness. Paul says in the weakness that, I'm, that he's made strong. Um, and so he, Paul loved his weaknesses because it was an area that God could show himself in. And we need to have that, all, that attitude. We also learn that, that God doesn't do the punishment and reward. That's all in the future. Okay, that, the future punishment, future reward. There's current consequences of sin, but there's not punishment for sin right now. That's a future thing. That's coming down the, down the way. Um, and so now it's, God is, is wanting to work through those weaknesses. And the disciples needed to understand that. They needed to, to, to experience that and see that because they were going to have their weaknesses and that, that God was going to need to work through later on. Question number three that kind of sticks out. Are only a few people going to be saved? Someone in the crowd asked Jesus that in Luke chapter 13, verse 23. Um, Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And Jesus goes on to say, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Uh, apparently, to the number, um, apparently compared to the number of people who have ever lived, yes, few are going to be saved. That, that the road is narrow, the gate is narrow, and few will find it. That few are willing to walk that road, to walk that path, to, to share in the sufferings of Christ. Francis Chan, in his book, Crazy Love, which if you haven't read it, you need to read it. Okay? It's, it's a fairly quick read. Um, but it will make you think, and it's going to challenge the way you've always thought about life. I love those books that challenge my status quo, and our small group is going through it right now, and we're about halfway through the book, but a couple weeks ago, he talked about this road being narrow, and that few people make it, and he said, don't we always assume that we are one of the few? Don't I always just assume I'm one of the few? You're one of the few. We're all one of the few. And he said, don't ever assume that you're one of the few. Don't ever assume that you're the good soil from the, the, the parable of the sower. Don't ever, because then we, we become lax. We, we just say, yep, I'm in. And, and that's not it. That's not how it works. That we have to diligently be living moment by moment for God. And if we ever go, I'm already in, We'll get lazy. Jesus is clear, which I think prompted the question. He wants all or nothing. He deserves all or nothing. We can't give him half of our life and expect to get in. We can't give him Sunday and small group night and Bible study night and not give him 40 hours a week at our job. 
that if we're not living 24-7 by faith for him, it's all or nothing. Jesus draws the lines very close, very narrow. There's not a lot of wiggle room with him. And that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so are only a few people going to be saved? Yes. Only a few people are going to be saved. And never assume you're one of the few. To where you get lax. Now, John says, I write these things that you know you can be saved. We can know. I know. But I can't get lax in that knowledge. I can't get lazy in that knowledge that I have to moment by moment remind myself that I don't deserve it. Yeah, I'm in. I do believe I'm one of the the few, but I don't deserve it. And I need to live as if I don't deserve it, by grace and by faith. Francis Chan says, let's face it, we're willing to make changes in our lives only if we think it affects our salvation. Are you willing to make changes in your life if you believe, yeah, I'm saved and this change... I'm going to change this in my life and it's not going to affect my salvation one way or the other, we're probably not going to make the change. Because we're really only willing to make changes that are going to affect our salvation. I will change this if I think I'm going to lose my salvation or if it means I'm not going to go to heaven. You know, how much can I get away with and still get in? And so Francis Chan says, all this is, this is why I have so many people ask me questions like, can I divorce my wife and still go to heaven? Can I do that? Am I a Christian even though I'm having sex with my girlfriend? If I commit suicide, can I still go to heaven? If I'm ashamed to talk about Christ, is he really going to deny knowing me? Well, he said he was. That if you deny him, he will deny you in front of the Father if you deny him in front of people. That if you're ashamed to talk about him, he's not going to talk about you to the Father. He says that. Can I go to heaven without truly and faithfully loving Jesus? No, you cannot. Don't assume you're one of the few. Don't assume you're in good soil. Continually cultivate it. Continually learn. Continually, moment by moment, connect with God. That relationship is renewed and grown day in and day out. In the crowd... We're not only friendlies who ask these type of questions, which Jesus answered straightforward. I mean, he didn't beat around the bush. He didn't hide it. He didn't talk in code. But in the crowd were also his rivals. In the crowd were the enemies of the gospel. Interesting that the most opposition to Jesus and his work came not from the general public, but from the religious community. The ones who should have known. The ones who should have been welcoming him. The ones who should have understood who he was by all the prophecies that were talked about him and now were being fulfilled. By the miracles and the signs and everything that he was doing. They should have been at the top of the list. But they were constantly fighting him. Constantly trying to tear him up. To trick him. To trap him. Uh, to, to discredit him. And the first group that we want to talk about are the Pharisees because they were probably the worst of them all. The Pharisees, they were, they were a group of religious leaders who were the guardians of the written and oral law. Okay, that was their job. 
to guard the law, to, to guard, kind of police it, if you will. They were the moral police sent to uphold the Ten Commandments. Okay, that was their responsibility in the nation, was to make sure that the Ten Commandments were being lived out, to make sure that they were being uh, promoted and, and told and taught and followed. Now, interestingly enough, as you read through the Gospels, you'll find that they had Ten Commandments, but they really zeroed in on one. Do you know which one that is? Their biggest one was remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That was the one they focused on more than any of the others. And so they, they would preach that. They would, they would uh, <clears throat> constantly police what was happening on the Sabbath. And if anyone was breaking the Sabbath, they were right there to wrap them on the knuckles for doing it. They had established uh, their own oral law to explain the Ten Commandments. To help people understand them, they kind of came up with their own uh, explanations. Um, and to the, to the, the hindrance in, in beating this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, that what was what meant was to set aside the seventh day that, that and we'll we'll find out that depending on which sect of the Jewish nation you were, it was either sun up to sundown or sun down to sundown. It was it was either sun up to sun up, that twenty four hour period, or sundown to sundown. So there were actually kind of two Sabbaths that were being, which is why Jesus could be crucified on the Sabbath and some hadn't done the Passover meal yet. Because of the way. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks when we get there. But they, they took that and, and they, they really took all the meaning out of it. That what was, what was meant, what God had set aside as the seventh day to remember God's creation and to celebrate his provision, to worship him, they lost it. In all of the rules, they lost the meaning of the Sabbath. Sabbath really means to cease, to rest. And it's to just stop what, you're, what life is doing and to step back from life and remember God. Remember his creation. Enjoy his creation. Enjoy God in his creation, in his nature. To set aside that time to, to worship him. And, and to just set aside a 24-hour period where your main focus is on God. Not that it's not the other six days of the week, but this day is the Sabbath day. You cease what's going on the other six in order to enjoy this one day with God. God established this as a day of feasting and celebration. Sabbath was a day of feasting. It was a day of celebrating. It was to cease their work, to celebrate God. Now, after the captivity in Babylon, in the Old Testament, and the destruction of the temple, when the Jews found their identity in the law, They could no longer find their identity in the temple and in worship because that had been destroyed. And so what they looked back on was the law. And they found their identity in following the law. And the Pharisees decided they would come along and help them do that. They would help them follow the law. And so their return from captivity in Babylon was really marked with legalism. We we say uh, be pharisaical to be legalistic, that it's all about rules. And God said, no, that, that Sabbath was all about relationship. 
It was all about me and you. And now you've made it out about rules, what to do, what not to do. Um, And they established an oral law and tradition to ensure that the Jews kept the Sabbath. How many? 600? How many? 613 laws to help us understand the 10 that God gave us. The Pharisees wrote out so that we would understand what it meant to keep the Sabbath day holy, to to not murder, to not steal, to not covet. They wrote 613 laws to go along with those 10. Couldn't kill a fly on the Sabbath day unless it was biting you. Then you could kill it. You know why? Because that constituted work. You hunted. Not allowed to do that. Not allowed to prepare food. Um, couldn't travel so far from your house, from your, your living quarters. Yeah. I, yeah, they would just travel to, and, and only move as far as they were allowed to move at that given time. I had also heard that you couldn't move, you know, however many, 50 feet or whatever from pers- your personal property. And so they would take a sandal and throw it. And then they'd walk to their sandal and they'd throw it again. They'd walk and they'd throw it again because they were never within that greater distance of their personal property. Um, and so with every law, there's a loophole, and we're creative and we'll come up with them. Mm-hmm. How do we do that today? Am I going home tonight and watching the Steeler game? Or am I going to contemplate on what? Well, it's sundown, so we're good after sundown. We can. <laughs> Sunday night football works. Um, Well, and that's, that's the question. What do, how do we do that? What do we do? And that's, that's a personal, I'm not going to be pharisaical and say you can or cannot do this or do that. And, and I, I think, you know, we do have to set aside this time. The, the New Testament also talks about a Sabbath rest. That it, it doesn't talk about the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It talks about the, a Sabbath rest, that we have those times. And the Sabbath is Saturday. Um, we've made it Sunday. We've made... Yes, and that's the point in the New Testament is not following that Sabbath day because we don't do that anymore. We do Sunday because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. So that's why we gather to worship on Sunday. Um, and <clears throat> so a Sabbath rest really is we just need a time. We need to have regular times where we get away, where we cease work, where we step back. And it's not a, a pharisaical or legalistic this day. Um, because pastors would have the hardest time not working, ceasing their work on Sunday. Because pastors only work one day a week and that's Sunday, right? Uh, <laughs> huh? Not if they're good pastors. So yeah, that, that Sabbath today is a, is a finding that place of rest, that, that ceasing to, to worship him and reflect on his creation. But it's not a set time, not a 24-hour period. Not a, we just need to have that in our life where we step back from life 
and reflect on him. So you can watch the Steelers. They actually came up, and I should have brought the book in, they came up with 39 categories, categories of forbidden activities. And then under each of those categories were the things that, explanations of what they were not to do in that category. Um, so <clears throat> they just killed it, really. Um, Brennan Manning, religion became the tool to intimidate and enslave rather than liberate and empower. Jewish believers were instructed to focus their attention on the secondary aspect of the Sabbath, abstention from work. The joyous celebration of creation and covenant stressed by the prophets disappeared. The Sabbath became a day of legalism. The means had become the end. Herein lies the genius of legalistic religion, making primary matters secondary and secondary matters primary. And so the Pharisees were, were great at that. I mean, that, this is what they did. The Pharisees probably found their origins um, in that 400-year period of silence uh, during the time of the Maccabees, about 135 B.C. Um, one of the noted Pharisees was Nicodemus uh, that we already looked at as encountered with Jesus. Um, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night under the cloak of darkness. Why? Didn't want to be seen. He was a Pharisee. And for a Pharisee to go and seek Jesus out for honest questions, to, to really learn and really see, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we're to be looking for? Here was a Pharisee that was having struggles with what the Pharisees were doing and what he knew about Scripture, what he knew about the law. And so he had to go for himself, but he had to do it under the, the cloak of darkness so as not to be seen by anyone else. We don't really know a lot about what happened to Nicodemus. Uh, we don't know if if he was saved or, or what exactly happened to him. I think he does pop in. Indications that he might have been saved um, later on in the Gospels. Paul also uh, was a Pharisee. In fact, he said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He said, you know, you want to know what a Pharisee, I was it. Um, I, I held it all. I held on strong to all the Pharisaical law and rules. I knew them. I promoted them. And with zeal, he carried them out. Um, and so Paul, too, was a Pharisee. The esti estimated number of Pharisees in Jesus' time was 6,000. But there were 6,000 Pharisees throughout the land at that time. Um, and we tend to think that they were like this, you know, small group held up in a conference room somewhere. Um, 6,000 of them all over uh, that were there. Um, Jesus many times spoke directly against the Pharisees. I give you four times, Matthew 5, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who doesn't think Jesus is sarcastic needs to read that again. That's not, he wasn't saying that you have to surpass that they were righteous. He was actually poking, not fun, but I mean it, it was a barb to them. They think they're righteous. And he was, he was telling the people right there that they're not. They're not righteous at all. And so he was attacking them. Matthew chapter 16, how is it that you don't under, talking to the Pharisees, how is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So he's telling his disciples, look, these guys are bad news. 
you know, avoid them. Don't follow them. You know, that what they're telling you is not true. Matthew 23, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. That was pretty heavy-handed. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. That's legalism. The guy in control will put a heavy burden on the person, but they don't necessarily follow it. Um, and that was what the Pharisees were doing. Luke chapter 18, to some, who were, uh, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. If you know the parable, the Pharisee said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like them, that I give a tenth of all my money, that I follow all the rules, that I am righteous, that I am... And Jesus said, the other one cried out, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. And he said it was the second one that went away justified. The Pharisee didn't. Uh, it was just yak, 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 blah, blah, blah. Is all, you know, Jesus heard white noise um, when that guy was talking. So probably they were the most hated and bitter enemies of Christ. I've listed for you several encounters that Jesus had with them um, and things that they tried to do to him. We're not going to look at every one of those. I just give them to you for sit down this week and read through them um, at some point. The second group, and we mentioned them in one of the verses because they were a lot of times lumped with the Pharisees, were the Sadducees. That's two D's and two E's at the end. Sadducees. They probably came from Zadok, which is where Sadducee would, would come from during the reign of Solomon. Came into power way back under King Solomon. First um, Kings chapter 2. While the Pharisees busied themselves with spiritual things, the Sadducees were the political party of the Jews. They kind of ran the government. They were in with uh, Rome, and they dealt a lot with Rome. And the Pharisees dealt mostly just with Jewish law and with the temple. They were actually bitter enemies of the Pharisees because the Pharisees were trying to hold on to all of the Jewish tradition and the Sadducees were working with Rome. And they saw that as a total conflict, as a sellout. And so they were bitter, bitter enemies. But it's interesting that the only time they came together was plotting Christ's death. It was the only thing they could agree on. This guy's got to go. Um, and they actually worked together uh, to get him out. Doctrinally, they denied the supernatural. They denied the resurrection. They denied the immortality of the soul, that once you died, you were done. That was it. They believed nothing that couldn't be found in the Pentateuch. Okay, so they went back just to the, the book of Moses, first five books of the Old Testament. That was all they, they didn't do all of the others. They didn't do the Psalms. They didn't do the prophets. They, none of that, just the first five books. Um, they were actually given rule over Her Herod's temple, and as I said, worked very closely with Rome, which made them unpopular with the general public. The general public didn't necessarily like the Sadducees. One, they didn't believe like them, and they were friends with Rome, um, but, but yet Jewish at the same time. They were the deists of their day. Deist meaning that they believed in a God, but he had absolutely no effect on what happened. Kind of started the world, walked away. Okay, there's no interaction, no real, you cannot know him, um, and he, can't, he cannot be known. They were skeptical of anything supernatural. 
they were also very fatalistic. <clears throat> they believed that God was not involved in their lives and that our own outcomes were left to fate and each one will get what they deserve. That was how they lived their life and that you'll get what you deserve. So if you're sick, well, you probably did something wrong to deserve that. If you were born blind, you probably or your parents did something for you to deserve that. That was the understanding of the Sadducees. The things were just left up to fate, okay? And you'll get what you deserve. Therefore, they believed that punishment for sin was man's responsibility and should be without mercy and severe. So it was man's responsibility to punish sin because there was no supernatural. There wasn't going to be a punishment later on. There wasn't going to be reward later on. So the Sadducees felt that if a man did something, he needed to be punished severely right now for that. Um, and so they were all in favor of getting rid of Jesus because they saw him as a threat. And the more severe the punishment, the better um, for that. Third group that Jesus came in contact with, not nearly as much as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, number three is the Sanhedrin. This was the legal department of Israel. They were kind of the Congress and the Supreme Court all rolled up into one. We read more of them when we talk about the trials that Jesus had to go before the Sanhedrin. Um, they made the laws, they held trials, they upheld justice, and they governed the country. So the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin did work somewhat closely together with the whole idea of the law. Um, Nicodemus, it is believed, was also a member of this group in John chapter 3 where it says that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. That was the Sanhedrin. So Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin as a Pharisee. Um, <clears throat> this Sanhedrin was probably established one of two places in the Old Testament. Uh, Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, under Moses, says, The Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. So basically, here's 70 men, um, officials of, of uh, the Jewish of Israel, that were going to help govern with Moses so that Moses wouldn't have to do it alone. God was actually going to place the spirit that he had placed, his Holy Spirit, on these 70 so that they could govern correctly. Also, Jehosh Jehoshaphat in Second uh, Chronicles 19.8, in Jerusalem also Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites, priests, and heads of Israelite families to administer the law of the Lord and to settle disputes, and they lived in Jerusalem. This could have been also a, a version of the Sanhedrin or, or as how it played out um, with him. It consisted of 70, uh, 70 members. Uh, it contained the current high priest, who was kind of the president of the Sanhedrin, uh, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Um, it had 24 heads of the priestly service division, so 24 of the priests that headed up each of the priestly divisions within uh, the temple. It had all the scribes and the lawyers and the elders who represented the laity. Um, so those made up the 70 uh, that were part of the Sanhedrin. Jesus was brought before them during his trials. 
Uh, it was the Sanhedrin that had him blindfolded, spit upon, and beaten. Um, according to their own law, they were to work for the acquittal of a person, not the conviction. So by their own set of how we operate, their job was to say innocent until proven guilty. If you bring a person to us, we are fighting for him as an innocent person. You have to prove to us that he's guilty, and then we will carry out punishment. When Jesus was brought in, guilty, before he ever even got there. So they went against their own rules, and we'll talk more about that with the trials, because every one of the trials that Jesus went through was not carried out according to their own rules. Um, it was a kangaroo court, by all means. Um, number four, the scribes. We just mentioned them, that they were part of the Sanhedrin. Uh, they were the students, the interpreters, and teachers of the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible. Scribes. S-C-R-I-B-E-S. Scribes. Um, they are actually doing the writing as well. They were also called lawyers um, many times uh, in Scripture. Jesus spoke out against them. I've given you three instances. This is Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. Those were the scribes, the teachers of the law, the lawyers. Um, and that he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. Matthew 21, but when the chief priest and the teachers of the law, the scribes, saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? <laughs> From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Uh, you know, they were trying to say, you're accepting worship. Do you not see what these children are doing for you? And he said, yeah, of course I do. And they're right in doing it which just ruffled their feathers even more. Matthew 23, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them, do everything, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Um, so the scribes and the Pharisees work together very, very closely um, in that. Um, now, why are so many of the recorded arguments, when I'm showing you that you know, Jesus had run-ins with the Pharisees and he had run-ins with the scribes, I quote Matthew almost every time, but not Mark, Luke, and John. Why is that? You remember? Why would Matthew make that a point and the other three not? Close. Who was Matthew writing to? Matthew wrote to the Jews. And so he would bring out the Pharisees and the scribes and the, and the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees, where Mark, Luke, and John were writing to Romans and Greeks and the general public that explaining the scribes and the Pharisees to the Romans wouldn't have meant anything to them. So there's no need to, to make those stories or to, to share those times um, because they, it wouldn't have mattered uh, to them. But Matthew is writing to the Jews, so we get that perspective. Number five is the Herodians. This was the political family of Herod. Um, we had Herod the Great, that was the one that uh, was around and in, in uh, reigning uh, when Christ was born. Tried to kill him as an infant. Um, so right from the get-go, Herod the Great had problems with this baby um, because he was to be a king of the Jews. 
Herod Archelaus ruled, after Herod the Great died, his two sons were given rule, one over Galilee and one over Judea. Herod Archelaus was the ruler of Judea from, six, or from 4 B.C. to 6 A.D. He didn't reign all that long, um, about 10 years there. And then Herod Antipas, which is one that we will, you can see and, and read about in Scripture, was the ruler of Galilee where Jesus did most of his ministry um, in Galilee. And so uh, Herod Antipas is the one that had an adulterous affair with his sister-in-law Herodias uh, that was condemned by John the Baptist. And if you remember, Herod Antipas threw a party and his stepdaughter danced for him and pleased him very much with the way in which she danced and he offered her anything that she wanted. And her mother said, ask for John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. Okay, I don't know if it was silver, but you get the idea. And she did. And John the Baptist was in prison, and so Herod gave her his head. And that was how John the Baptist died, um, as a present to his stepdaughter, really, is who it was. Um, Jesus refers to him as that fox, um, not a good term. Uh, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus was was taken to him, Herod Antipas, during his trials. When they found out he was from Galilee, then you need to take him before Herod Antipas, and that's where he went. Um, the Herodians' authority to reign came from Rome, and they were charged with maintaining peace and order um, within the Jewish, within Israel. That was what Rome wanted them to do. You go and just maintain peace. Uh, we don't want to hear about what's going on. Don't let anything come to us. Okay, just deal with it. And that was what they did. Jesus also spoke out against them. Mark chapter 8, be careful, Jesus warned, watch out for the east of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Okay, so again, they're trying to trap him and Jesus is up on it. He says, why are you trying to trap me? What, you know, what are you doing? And, and really uh, forced their hand in that. Again, Mark wrote to the Romans so he would show the opposition with Herod, with the Herodians. So we get the, the explanations of Mark because he was writing to the Romans um, and would share that. Number six, the last one, Pontius Pilate. Um, kind of forced into being an enemy of Jesus. Uh, we don't know much about Pontius Pilate except at the end with the, with the trial. Um, in A.D. 26, Emperor Tiberius, Tiberius Caesar, retired to the island of Capri. And when he did that, he left a Lucius Sejanus in Rome to oversee the Roman government. So Tiberius is still in charge, but he kind of abdicated a lot of authority and responsibility to this Lucius guy. And um, Lucius was a fight-first type of ruler. You know, beat heads, ask questions later, okay? That was the way he kind of went about it, even to the point of he killed the emperor's son and then found out what the emperor's son had done, okay? Just deal with him. Get rid of him. Do away with it. Lucius uh, named his friend, Pontius Pilate, the procurator of Judea from A.D. 26 to 36. So in the time of Jesus' ministry, Lucius put Pilate in charge of Judea. So he is overseeing that area. Um, and 
Pilate tried to rule the same way Lucius did, with an iron fist. And in so doing, in Judea, that didn't work. Because any opposition that Rome showed them, they immediately revolted against. They fought it at every turn. And so he did some things that really just riled them up, Pilate did. And he almost ruined his career in Judea. It took him a while to learn that you have to appease the people or they're going to have an uprising. And his job was to maintain peace. And if he didn't maintain peace and word got back to Lucius, he was going to lose his job. And so he would do whatever it took to maintain that peace. Um, He was in jeopardy of losing his post because of his mistakes early on and riots that, that took place and upheaval that happened. He was in jeopardy of losing his post if another riot ensued. And that's what forced his hand to give the Jewish people what they wanted in Christ's crucifixion. Remember, he said he's innocent. I don't find anything wrong with this man. Well, he had all the power and the authority, so why not turn him loose? If there's absolutely nothing wrong with him, why not use your power and your authority to turn him loose? Because he knew if he turned him loose, there was going to be a riot in the streets, and he was going to lose his job. And he said he couldn't, he couldn't take that. So he said, I'm washing my hands of, this, of his blood. His blood's on you. And he turned them over to do with whatever they wanted. Um, and that was forced because of the way in which he was ruled uh, early on. Now, some interactions with the crowd. I gave you five things that, that, the, that these Pharisees and Sadducees talked um, and asked Jesus, trying to trick him. And so they were not so much seeking the answer as just trying to trip him up. The first one is, he asked the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? This is the same question that's asked today. I get this question, I can't say all the time, but I get this question from time to time. Is it lawful, and Francis Chan said it, can I divorce my wife and still please God? Can it, you know, what, under what conditions can I divorce my wife? Can I get a divorce? Can I seek a divorce because this is happening? See, this is the same question that the Pharisees asked Jesus years and years ago. Jesus immediately points them back to the law of Moses, which they should know. They're the Pharisees. They've added, they've memorized, they know. Jesus said, Moses allowed it because your hearts were hard. Not that it was right. Not that divorce was right. God hates divorce. And and God hates divorce because it messes up his whole system. We were talking about this in the Truth Project this morning, that, that God has put his imprint on society, on all of our social networks. God's imprint is there. God's, God's desire for relationship and community is on every one of our social uh, systems, family being the first one. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son are one, right? Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And that the Holy Spirit honors what the Father and the Son does. Now flip that over to the imprint on the family, husband and wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Children, honor your father and mother. Same way the Holy Spirit honors the father and the son, children are to honor the father, their father and their mother. It's the same imprint that, that the Trinity works in 
The family is to work in. And so God says, I, I hate divorce simply because it, it eliminates my, pr- my thumbprint on this social system that I'm making foundational for the way life should be lived. And so in their attempts to trick him, it says not, not is divorce, the, the question that we need to ask is not is divorce acceptable in my case? Because it, it may be, because our hearts were hard. But can God put my family back together? Is it possible for God to fix this? And the answer to that is always yes. Yes. It's always possible for God to fix it. Because that's what God does. All things are possible. And so in their attempts to trick him, he immediately turns it right back around on them. You should know the answer to this question. Number two, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus was very good at always answering, not always, but many times answering a question with a question. And this was common practice. And I think it's a, a great tactic when someone isn't really asking to gain knowledge but to just argue, throw a question right back at him. And Jesus did that on this case. You can read about it and see how he answered that. Again, number three, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay, Matthew chapter 22, first they buttered him up. They said, we know you're a great teacher, that you have integrity. You would never do anything wrong. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Because the Jews hated paying taxes to Caesar. And if he says yes, then the people are going to rise up against him. Again, look at his question. Give to Caesar his answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. They didn't want that answer. Okay? Because what is God's? Everything. So yeah, go ahead and give money to Caesar. Pay the tax. God wants your whole life. Give to God your entire being. They didn't like that. Um, See, there is no separation of politics and Christianity in the life of a Christian. They must be together, as is every other area of our life. It's incorporated. God wants everything. Fourth question that's asked. Now then, at the resurrections, whose whose wife will she be of the seven? This was the Sadducees came and lay down. And it's funny as you read through these because it's usually one right after the other. The Pharisees fired a question. That didn't go well. So the Sadducees huddled up and said, okay, let's try to trick him with this one. They came back and they did it. That didn't work. So the Pharisees huddled back up. Okay, let's try to trick him with this one. And, and none of them worked. The Sadducees had got together and they said, okay, let's say that, that a, a man and a wife are married. And before they have children, the man dies. And under the, the common law, the understanding was that the brother would take his, the brother of the man would take his sister-in-law and make her his wife to have children on behalf of his brother, okay? The unmarried brother, right. An unmarried brother would then marry his widowed sister-in-law. And, okay, let's say that he dies. And so the next brother, and the next brother, and the next brother, I think there's like six of them that he says. Which one of these in heaven, they said. Now then, at the resurrections, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Anyone find this question incredibly funny? Who's it coming from? The ones who don't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees are asking him. Now, in the resurrection, they don't even believe in the resurrection. 
It's a trick question. And Jesus knew that. And he handled it like that every time. Then the Pharisees gathered back. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said we, we have to love God with all of our faculties. Everything about us. Love him with your, your mental abilities, your intellectual abilities. Love him with your emotions. Love him with your, your spiritual, our entire being. Heart, soul, mind. The word to love God. Pharisees didn't like that because they had compartmentalized their entire life into rules. And, and so they were, remember, wanting the greatest commandment because what one did they think it was? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's what they were hoping was the answer they were going to get. And he didn't even give them one of the ten. He said, love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, those two summarized... Yeah, those two summarized all ten of them uh, with that. And so Jesus, Jesus handled his enemies. When people in the crowd came to him truly seeking answers, Jesus answered them straightforward, gave them the answer. Not that they were necessarily, but gave them the truth. When the enemies were trying to trick him, he threw it right back at him. He didn't answer them. He, he threw questions right back at him. And the same is true today. If people truly search... They'll find him. But people who are just trying to find wrong and, and, and find a way out and find a loophole, they, they won't be satisfied. They won't be satisfied. Jesus is not going to mess around with them. And he knows our hearts. And so we need to give Christ our whole being. Everything about us, we give him. Heart, soul, mind. Somewhere in there, one of them throws in strength, our physical as well, okay? Next week, we're going to start the final week of Jesus' life. Um, we're going to rush through the final week day by day next week, as well as we're going to look at the trials that he went through. Um, we're going to look at the seven final sayings, the seven things he said on the cross. Um, we're not at all doing this next week. Over the next three weeks is what we're going to do. We're going to look at his, uh, his ascension, his resurrection. And so we're really going to zero in now on the last seven days, really zeroing in on the last two or three days um, of his life from this point on. So let me pray for you, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, again, we thank you for your truth, that you are a God of truth, that you, you love us. Father, you, knew, uh, you know what it's like to have enemies. You know what it was like to have people who were... Uh, conspiring against you, uh, that, that, uh, that, that wanted to harm you. And so, Father, you know what it's like for us when those people come to us. And yet you've said that we need to pray for them, that we need to love them. And even you, one of, the, one of your statements on the cross was forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Father, help us to have that attitude against those that seem hostile to the gospel. Help us to love them unconditionally. Help us to show your love. Father, if that means we're to suffer the way you suffered, I guess so be it. For you have overcome the world. Father, help us to be overcomers. That we would share your gospel to the crowds, to the outsiders. That, Father, you would be able to reap a harvest. Lead us 
to those people. Lead us to those that are truly searching, truly seeking you. Father, those that are ripe, send us this week that we might have your appointed conversation with them, that we might share your truth, that we might have that kind of an evangelistic encounter. In Jesus' name, amen.